Hi, and welcome to Rambling About Greek Mythology, a lax podcast where I just talk about a lot of Greek mythology. Before I start today's episode, I want to address, you know, why was I not following the consistent schedule I claimed I would follow? Well, I faced a lot of cancellations for flights going into the new year. I only got in on New Year's Eve, and then I was pretty tired on New Year's to actually record anything and get this up and running. I've actually had this episode uh, planned out for a while now, and I just never got an opportunity. But I'm finally here. I'm finally doing it. So let's do it. And Happy New Year, by the way. So today's episode, we'll begin to talk about Athena, to talk about who this goddess is, what her origin stories are, and some major and minor events she was involved in. So who is Athena? Athena is actually one of our more straightforward gods in a lot of respects, from her domains to trying to understand her name to her origins as a member of the Greco-Roman pantheon. So Athena is another one of our goddesses who has the privilege of maintaining her virginity, and her main domains are over wisdom, the arts, the crafts, and war. She isn't a pure brainless war goddess, I want to note, but rather the strategic and calculated use of it. That's really how one should interpret and perceive her. Um, Just as always, the Roman goddess she ends up being syncretized with and identified with is Minerva. Her sacred animal was pretty much just the owl, and as a result, owls got an association of wisdom with them. So we can shift gears now to talking about her origins as a goddess in the Greco-Roman pantheon. You might know of the city Athens and be wondering, did the city get its name from Athena or Athena from the city? This is like the chicken and the egg, right? Who came first? Well, given the fact she was originally this ancient goddess of the palace who presided over the household crafts and protected the king, and that the ending to her name is really uncommon for non-place names, scholars have come to agree that she got her name from the city. I find this really fascinating because it's a really unique uh, like name origin among our major Olympians. Usually they are representing some abstract concept. That's how their name is derived. There's also some discussion regarding her perception in terms of, you know, how did the Greeks uh, depict her and worship her because of the number of times she's depicted with wings, prompting people to wonder if she was actually a bird goddess of some degree. This can extend from material culture to, if you have read the Odyssey, there are certain sections and certain moments when she leaves, she's always leaving in the form of a bird. So they wonder, you know, is there significance to why she's always changing into a bird before leaving? So let's shift over now to talk about her origin stories in terms of like her birth, you know, right? Like how do the Greeks depict her coming into the Greco-Roman pantheon? So her birth story is actually a quite fun one. It isn't super complicated, but it has its own like wacky details you'll enjoy. So everything goes down after Zeus decides to take the Oceanid Metis as his first consort slash wife, though really seemingly it's non-consensual, so I don't know what the point is of using consort and wife as opposed to just being like this was like a victim. Um, I wonder if there's something to do with wife and the way it's used in older times to just generally mean like someone a male slept with, I guess, and then produced a child and you would just term wife regardless of any marriage or anything or consent even. Anyway, Metis was fittingly known for her wisdom, again, a transfer of role, right? And thanks to the advanced warning of Gaia and Oranos, Zeus learned that Metis would bear a second child a son who would depose him. 
this would be like running back the fate Oranos and Cronus both encountered. So, Zeus took a page out of Cronus' genius playbook and swallowed the pregnant Metis to, you know, avoid the birth of this alleged son. But when it was time for Metis to give birth, Zeus realized he had kind of bought it out because, you know, this is super believable and all, and she's able to give birth inside him. So he either got the help of the famous titan Prometheus or the god of the forge Hephaestus and had them use an axe to split open his head. I don't, I just don't get it how you can take an axe to the head and be like, okay. And from his head sprang Athena, fully fledged, fully armed, and shouting a war cry. This must have been quite the headache for Zeus. Please clap. This sort of birth is also thought to further reinforce the association with wisdom and intelligence since she was born from the head, Zeus is kind of considered all-knowing, so it makes sense. It also makes you wonder how these gods are shaped for that to have anatomically worked. Like, I don't know, I, I don't know if y'all have seen humans, but birthing another human through the head of a human and birthing, having an entire another person in you and then giving birth doesn't really work out. Also, for a major goddess, it's pretty interesting that she has some alternate birth stories to put her origins in Libya or Arcadia or Boeotia. I won't go over them, but it's just something to be aware of since usually the birthplace of major gods are not too often contested. There's usually a pretty established site besides maybe slight variation of like where on that island or general land location they were born. So that's our origin, that's our background on Athena. We have a general idea of who she is, so let's see how she's depicted and talk about some fun stories. Our first story is perhaps the most relevant one to Athena, and it's about her patronage of Athens. So let's set the scene. It is early times in myth, cities are just starting to form, and gods are fighting to lay claim to cities and be their patron deity. There is a lot to gain from being a patron of a city when they will naturally honor you with the most sacrifices and erect temples to you and so on and so forth. So our boy Keycrops the first. The first here is just like a general way of keeping track of all the Kekro pace that exists. It's not necessarily like he's the first and he's succeeded by like the second, which is his son. So Keycrops the first is the arbiter and has as the contestants Poseidon and Athena. Poseidon decides to, for his gift to present a well of sea water, while Athena, on the other hand, provides the olive tree. Now you might think, oh, a well, water is so great, but then remember it's sea water, so it's salty, it's not potable, meaning it's not drinkable, and thus one of the dumbest gifts someone could give, especially in the form of a well. Like, what are you going to do with sea water in a well? You're just going like, to stare at it, I guess. So naturally, Keycrops I picked Athena for her more useful gift, and thus she became the patron. So based on origins and stuff, this is probably like a workaround of sorts and to develop an association, rep like reputation for Athens and Athena, but it establishes that super direct connection. Uh, so I think that's really important. It also, I guess, is a good example of how stupid Poseidon is. So take what you will from that story. The next bit is just a fun one I want to share. It's also really gruesome, so let's do it. So Tydeus is like this super notable warrior known for defeating an ambush of 50 Theban men on his way to siege Thebes. The fight goes down, and the man is eventually mortally wounded in the stomach on the ground. 
Athena was his patron goddess, and really liked him, I guess, so she decided she was going to give him immortality as he lay dying. This seer named Amphiaraeus, however, was not happy that he had gotten roped into this expedition. He had actually known prior that it was doomed, which is why he wanted to avoid it, so he decided to prevent Tydeus from getting his gift. So what he did was, is he cut off the head of a Theban named Melanippus and gave it to Tydeus. Tydeus just went full cannibal mode and started eating the man's brains, and Athena was so horrified she withdrew the gift. That's pretty metal though, no? Like, I'd be like, oh dang, okay, you're really committed to like killing your opponents. Either way, the idea of the story was to really show, you know, how Athena was a really, really beneficial and powerful patron god to have, and in some cases could reward you greatly. Like, immortality is a big deal, Um, though hopefully he gets also youth with it. The next big story, though, like every god, Athena has her low moments. But also, this story is definitely the hubris of the mortal. It's a mix. You gotta be prepped for God sucking his people, but you know, they also suck his people. Anyway, let's get started with the story. So this woman named Arachne was a notable weaver whose works brought the local nymphs and naturally, like a moron, she decided to boast that she was better than Athena. So, Athena appears in the guise of an old woman and is like, Yo, you shouldn't say stuff like that. You'll tilt the gods. Uh, And then Arachne doubles down and Athena reveals herself and they go at it. So when I say they go at it, they go into a weaving contest. So Athena depicts four instances of mortals being punished for competing with the gods, which is pretty uh, topical, I would say. Arachne, on the other hand, depicts various gods and the women they pursued and raped which is like super based that she would do that, especially in a contest with another immortal. Uh, You know, she's kind of like standing up and fighting for herself. And then Athena is like, wait a second, she's actually better than me. And just like full tilts, as she said a god would, and tears up Arachne's work and beats Arachne with her shuttle, a shuttle being like the tool that holds the thread when weaving, and this caused Arachne to hang herself. Then... Athena said, you know, this is not enough, sprayed nightshade on Arachne, and transformed her into a spider to eternally weave. This story really shows the dark side of Athena, and perhaps any god in her place, but it also is once again another story of how excessive pride always leads to one's downfall. It's giga-cursed. The next minor story will be one of the two cheat stories today in which I mention multiple things in a bigger event she took part of to convey a general point. For a more expansive episode on the Gigantamaki, the battle between the giants and the gods, you can go check out that episode. It was one of the original ones I made when I first started this podcast. So what was Athena's part in it? In this fight, she took out two giants in two different ways. One giant was named Pallas, whose skin she tore off to use as a shield. The other was a giant named Enceladus, upon whose, whom sorry, she tossed the island of Sicily. The latter story is supposed to be an explanation for why Mount Etna was a volcano and breathes fire. Of the gods who fought in this, Athena was one of the few women who took out giants, and she was the only one to take out two, which she did single-handedly. We'll ignore the condition that Heracles had to wound the giants because he had to do that with every single one, so it's not as meaningful, but like what she pulled off in this fight is pretty much unparalleled. 
If this story does not convey to you the battle prowess Athena is known for, I don't know what will. The last major story we'll cover is about the origin of Athena's epithet, Pallas. It is actually such a widely and commonly used epithet that she is consistently called Pallas Athena. The origin of this has two different potential origins. So first, suggested meanings for Pallas might be brandisher of weapons or maiden, one of the two. Uh, Some suggest now, for how she may have gotten it, that she got it from slaying the giant Pallas, whom I just mentioned, like, probably a minute and a half ago. The other story goes as follows. In certain versions of Athena's youth, she was raised by the sea god Triton. Triton had a daughter named Pallas. Athena and Pallas were super close and practiced war games together, fighting and whatnot as friends. One day, Pallas was about to strike Athena, so Zeus spooked her with the Aegis. This is where timelines are kind of wonky, because like Medusa has not been killed yet. And Athena struck her and killed her. Then she became super sad, she being Athena, and made a wooden statue to commemorate her that would be known as the Palladium. This sort of tragic story is one offered to us as an origin for the name, and frankly it just makes me so confused why Zeus would let Athena strike the girl and kill her if Athena is literally a deity and would have been fine if she just got hit in the first place. I don't know, I guess we hate Zeus and like weird, oh my god, mortal shouldn't be able to, or I mean, palace potentially like a half-mortal, half-immortal, shouldn't be able to wound gods or something. I don't know. I think it's a very stupid situation that took place, but it brings us to an origin of something, so I guess it's okay. Our final story now is the other cheat story for today, where we're going to talk about two instances to show Athena's impact on events she was involved in. Once more, we're back to the Iliad. Who would have guessed a Homeric epic would keep showing up in these episodes? Anyway, Athena's presence in the Iliad can be felt on many fronts, but I'm going to talk about two ways she influenced the war. One time was in Book 4, when she convinced this archer Pandarus to break the truce by aiming to shoot the Greek leader Menelaus. She obviously saved Menelaus, being on the Greek side, but this restarted the war knowing that the Greeks were going to win in due time, and any lull time was not beneficial to the end goal. The second time she influenced the war greatly was in Book 22, when she took on the form of Hector's brother Deiphobus or Deiphobus, and came to him claiming that he would help him fight Achilles. So, Hector, the champion of Troy, more or less their final great warrior, stopped running around the city trying not to die, but when he turned to face Achilles and looked to his ally, his ally had vanished just like the Avatar when the world needed him most. I really hope I don't get struck for that. Thus, the champion of the Trojans was killed, and in due time, Troy fell to the attack of the Greeks. This latter moment, I think, is very, very significant, because this is more or less, even the Iliad shows it, is like the determining factor for what will happen with the Greeks and Troy. I mean, Troy was fated to fall anyway, but the fact of, you know, when it's taking place and stuff, it's all technically fated, but in the perception of the mortals and stuff, this is the massive, massive turning point and uh, like nail in the coffin to really start and entering the end game for the Greeks. These two moments may seem kind of like whatever, Um, generally speaking, like, oh, any god could have done this. But I think for her being a daughter of Zeus and not one of the original six Olympians and having this notable influence really speaks to her ability 
presence and power among the Greek gods. And I think that's a really big deal. Overall, the thing to understand about Athena is how she really does display her prowess in every domain she is known for, and she has a plethora of stories that reflect that. She also has a great presence and prowess among the gods, and really has the battle-hardened performances that one might expect out of Ares, reflecting the respect and admiration for brains over brawn, though obviously both are more than welcome. With that, we'll close off this episode, and next episode we'll be focusing on Demeter, talking about who she is, what are her origins, and some stories she's involved in so we can understand the Greek gods of agriculture. As always, please let me know if you have any comments, questions, or concerns at ragm1928 at gmail.com. I'm more than willing to answer. I hope you had a good time listening, and thank you so much for it all, and take care.